He's asking that that Siddhanta is a word. It means like the spiritual argument, the conclusion, like that that has been uh, this part of the lineage. So it has a um, it has that which philosophically constitutes the parameters of orthodox, in this case, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Gaudiya Vedanta, our tradition. Hmm? And so um, the question is, if I understand it correctly, what is the position of those who, let's say, dressed as Gaudiyas and teachers maybe even, they teach, but we find there's heterodox type of doctrines that arise in their teaching. Your further question about that is, what stage of spiritual life have such persons in our tradition attained? Hmm? And you question about the stage of nishta. Nishta is a stage, it means literally like firm conviction. Hmm? And that firm conviction is thought to come from consistent practice that conforms with orthodox understanding of the teaching over time. And it's thought that, that it's a stage in which the intellect becomes also fully involved, and thus the way to involve the intellect to a large extent is to understand the, 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 uh, the orthodox teachings and, and so forth, the philosophical parameters in which the idea lives. And um, so, our, so for good reason, I, I guess you, you, you're wondering, well, here's someone, he's a teacher or she's a teacher, but we find something heterodox. Have they even reached the stage of nishta, which is, which is kind of a, an earlier stage. It's kind of an interim goal. Hmm? Uh, prior to the stage of nishta in our tradition, we have stages, sadhusanga. Hmm? Sadhusanga means to associate with sadhus in the tradition. Hmm? And from that, we get some inspiration. And so, uh, when that inspiration turns into faith, well, we're able to move. Faith animates us, so to speak. In the Gita, Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, a person is their faith. So it's the animating principle. In other words, if you don't have faith in something, you can't go forward in it, whatever it is. If you don't trust that you'll get the kind of outcome that you want, you're frozen. So suspicion leads to suspension. Hmm? And uh, faith is, is, is an animating principle. So in, in the bhakti tradition, all that's needed to tread the path, officially or formally, is faith, whereas there's no other prerequisites. You don't have to have a clean heart. You don't have to have a certain amount of money. You don't even have to have a certain level of understanding. Hmm? Um, yoga, yoga marg, for example, the classical yoga, ashtanga, mystic yoga, has certain prerequisites. It also requires faith in the path, obviously, to tread it. But in order to tread it, one also, for example, has to be celibate. That's one of the prerequisites, brahmacharya. There are others as well. We don't find those types of um, prerequisites required. Let's say gyan, to sit and in gyan mark as a contemplative and do meditation. What's required is a pure heart. That's fairly obvious, because if your heart is cluttered with all kinds of desires, you can't sit. 
they're animating you to go and you have confidence in, faith in the pursuit of them, will uh, you will derive something the, in your interest from them. So, uh, so there's a process in the Gyanmark for purifying the heart so that you can sit. Hmm? And that is a kind of a preliminary thing before you actually tread the official path. So it also requires faith in the path and the goal, but that prerequisite is there. So not path of knowledge, the path of, myst- path of mystic yoga, the path of bhakti. Hmm? In Hinduism, these are the three transcendental paths. Hmm? Bhakti requires only the faith. And that's said to be its, its power. Hmm? It can come and purify the heart. It can come and take away lust, for example. There's no better way to first get rid of lust and then take the bhakti, but bring bhakti into the heart. And you have something, you have, in bhakti you have what might be called, uh, sometimes it's said in sports language, the best defense is a good offense. So in yoga marg and gyan marg, you're kind of pushing down on the senses, trying to control them, this, in Bhakti Marg, we're just using the senses to serve Krishna. Hmm? So, in the context of that, they don't. Um, we don't have to defend against as much their being engaged in other sense objects for material purposes, because they're fully engaged in spiritual purposes. So, a good offense is the best uh, defense. Hmm? Bhakti is very positive. Let's take renunciation. In the Gyan Marg, the path of knowledge one progresses by renunciation. It's part of the path, the practice of renunciation. So you find these mystics in India, for example, uh, dressing in ashes. That's pretty austere. That's pretty detached. No clothes, dressing in ashes. Or they they submerge themselves in the Ganges at midnight in the month of Magh, the coldest month, up to the neck. And in the day, in the summertime, at noon, they build a fire and sit next to it. So there's these austerities and this detachment. I'm not, I'm not the body. And so they put it into extremes to experience that. So in, in, in the path of Gyan, one of the methods, one of the, the limbs of the body of the path is cultivation of detachment. So to illustrate my point, in bhakti... As I'm explaining, one of the limbs of the path of the body is is attachment. Sangha means attachment, really. It's attaching yourself to sadhus, hmm? by which detachment comes about automatically because they have a certain lifestyle and you live with them. And also, to illustrate the point, what I mean to say is that in bhakti, we try to love Krishna, for example. Okay. And so there are things that, that are favorable for loving Krishna, things that are unfavorable. If something is unfavorable for loving Krishna, we reject it. If something's favorable, we reject it. What if the thing is favorable for serving Krishna, but it's pleasing to my mind and senses? Still, I reject it. Hmm. What if a thing is... What's the opposite? Did I say it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it goes both ways. If a thing is pleasing for Krishna, we accept it, even if my senses don't like it. Hmm? If a thing is not pleasing to Krishna, we reject it, even if my senses like it. I have this duality. 
I like this, I don't like that. It's all monodharma. It's all based on the mind and the senses. Input from the senses comes into my mind. My mind says, I like this, I don't like that. She's good, she's, he's bad. This is hot, this is cold. We live in this world of dualities. It's all created by the mind. For you it's hot, for me it's cold. It's neither one, really. It's all relative to the mind and senses I have. So I've got my goods and bads, my happies and sads. Now I come with a new criterion in bhakti. If it's favorable for bhakti, I reject it. If it's unfavorable for bhakti, if it's, if it's unfavorable to bhakti, if it's favorable to bhakti, I accept it. If it's unfavorable to bhakti, I reject it. Hmm? I have a new criterion of goods and bads. Hmm? Hmm? I'm, so as much as I apply that criterion, I transcend the previous criterion created by my mind. It's keeping me in the world of duality. Hmm? I come into a non-dual world where there's variety that doesn't compromise the, 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 the non-duality. Hmm? Everyone non-dual, everyone is centered on Krishna. And then there's various ways in which that centering takes place. It's like the different ways you can love someone. So, so at any rate, a good offense is the best defense. So, so we detachment is not one of the practices, but it comes about automatically in bhakti. I because I love you and you don't like that. Therefore, I don't like that either. This this love psychology. So it's applied in a yogic context. Hmm? So the attachment, the detachment, is very natural. It comes out of something positive. You understand? It comes out of a positive orientation, and the re- the detachment is a result rather than a practice. It's a it's a result rather than the means. Hmm? So sangha, we get sangha, we get association with devotees. And as a result of that, we hear from them, we associate, it's possible faith awakens. Hmm? It's, it's, bhakti is like a fire, so if you touch it, you get burnt, yeah, whether you know it or not. Hmm? So even unknowingly, you may be touched by bhakti and affected. Hmm? And it's a time that accumulates. And all of a sudden it turns into a psychology that enables me to identify with the philosophy, which is pretty good, but every philosophy is limited <laughs> in terms of explaining something that's beyond words and thought. But, but, but those who are deeply seated in that reality can talk about it considerably in a way to awaken faith in those who have a psychology, hmm? a sangskar, a conditioning, spiritual conditioning, hmm? that subtly takes place, even if we don't know it, in association of saintly persons. It's not just an intellectual or a physical exchange. It's an exchange of heart. Hmm? And so what the sadhu is bearing in his or her heart, that will have an effect on your, your chitta. Hmm? And so an aptitude and a psychology starts to form. And then suddenly you find the philosophy really makes sense. You really like it. Hmm? And so you have faith. So what? this is the next stage, Shraddha. So now you can formally tread the path. So what do you do? You have this faith, so then you associate with like-minded persons who have the faith. And in the context of that association, you find someone who really stands out. And he or she really is compelling 
in terms of their example and understanding of the precept and ability to explain it. Mm -hmm. And so you find, hey, uh, here I've got, this person really is um, nurturing my faith. And so we take the guidance from that person. That person becomes the guru. Then we, we get initiated and he or she teaches us, live within these parameters, do like this. Hmm? And so we do that. And as we do that, this is all about that accepting the favorable, rejecting the unfavorable type thing and, and various practices that we do. And gradually things come out of the heart and they're retired and they're retired. And your conception of what you're doing is refined from the scriptural argument. It's refined and refined and refined to the point where all the principal impediments hmm, are removed. And so before the impediments are removed, your path kind of goes like this. There's a learning curve, but now it's straight. The road's straight. It's straight, but it's not, as I say, not narrow. It's broad. Suddenly, then, rules become realizations. Hmm? And, and verses take on many meanings, all within the parameters of the teaching. It's, it's, and you're entering into, into the, the grayness of spiritual life, a comforting gray. It's not any longer black and white. At some point, the black and white is comforting. They're over there, and I'm over here. That's good. I'm good. They're bad. And, and that, but then you come to this gray stage where like, Ah, there's uncertainty in love, but you certainly don't want to give it up. Something like that. So there's a comfort with with the knowing that I can't know everything, therefore I love it. I cannot know God comprehensively. Nobody can even know the world of matter, as you and I were saying earlier, comprehensively. So the knowing idea having to know everything, kind of gets retired, and you kind of know that by loving I can know more than I could otherwise. Loving is bigger than knowing. It is the full face of knowing, something like that. So this is in the stage of nishta that you're talking about. So one is developed there. They know the intellect isn't fully involved, so they know the scriptural argument very well. Hmm? Very equipped to tread the path. Hmm? And... Um, and they're, they're having some consistent experience by their practice. Prior to that, you do practice. You maybe get some experience, then you don't. But you go through the practice anyway because you know it should be done. And, but in Nishta, the stages, the experience becomes consistent. Then it turns gradually from a steadiness in practice that is such that any remaining material desires don't have the opportunity to fructify it's like if you pour water on seeds and you just keep watering them, they get waterlogged, they don't sprout. Hmm. So they don't have the chance to fructify. And so when they become waterlogged, so to speak, by the flow of your your bhakti, then they no longer even have this, this are in a seed stage that they could germinate at some point. This is called ruchi, this next stage. Then the medicine has become food now. The practice is... Ruchi means taste. One has a consistent, enduring taste for the practices of bhakti. Hmm. They're like... It's like, like, you, like you think... Is it lunchtime? Is it lunchtime? No, this is going to be another 15 minutes. Okay. And you sit and eat. So then it's like this. Is it time to chant? 
<laughs> you know, something like that. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Can we chant now? Can we read now? Can we? Can we? Can we do it again? Something like this. So it's consistent. Mm-hmm. And one now has no longer material attachment, but he finds or she finds I'm attached to bhakti. Mm-hmm. And the attachment and the deriving from the taste is particular because the taste is specific. Mm-hmm. Bhakti is in a general way. I'm going to serve Krishna. Mm-hmm. Krishna is Brahman. Mm-hmm. In form, hmm? Satchitananda, personified, hmm? condensed, hmm? and Brahman is that Satchitananda that is omnipresent, omnipotent, the underlying reality of consciousness that can't move because it's everywhere. And Krishna is Brahman, somehow moving, animated by bhakti. By the love from the devotee, Brahman is animate, animated hmm? and moving. That we call Leela. So deep in this objective world, these Leelas are going on. The play of God. Hmm? It's very exciting. That's like peace and love, as I say. Not just peace. Hmm? Movement. So, the taste is specific in Ruchi. Hmm? And... There's a certain kind of love of Krishna that's coming. That's all derived from the association that you've had, and now it's coming to bear fruit. Hmm? Because that was transferred to you. It was kind of, how you say, contagious by the sadhus that you associated with. And from this ruchi, attachment to bhakti, becomes an attachment to the object of that of that bhakti, hmm? the particular form of, of the Godhead. Hmm? And then one graduates from this bhakti in practice, it enters into the second stage, larger stage, a phase, let's say, of bhakti and ecstasy. Hmm. And then there's internal life going on, and it's cultivated, and it gradually turns into what we call prem, love of God, and one enters into the lila. Hmm. So, this is the progression. And in that progression, as I say, the stage you're talking about, nishta, is kind of an interim stage. We want to get there. It's like, here you are, and here's where you want to go, into the valley. And there's a mountain in between. So there are stages that involve going up the mountain. And you want to go up with some help in case you fall. <laughs> Somebody's holding on to you with a rope. Come back up. Okay, so we stick together. We help one another go up. We scale the mountain. And, some, and one day you say, I cannot go any higher. Okay, just rest right there. Take it easy. Somebody helps to pull you up, and then you go, and you get new energy, and you go. The next day, you're helping the other person up. And so then you get to the top of the mountain. Whew, we made it. You still have to go all the way down to the valley. Hmm? That top is nishta. Now you can kind of see there's a, there is a valley. Yeah, we heard about it. We believed it. We can, it's a wave, but still, hmm, it's there. Huh? Now you're going. You're not thinking now. You're just going. Hmm? As you come down the hill and ruchi, with the taste, you're going gradually into the valley of Prem. Hmm? Something like that. Hmm? So, <laughs> just to go over the stages. So this nishta, interim stage, to get to the top of the mountain, it, it generally um, implies, in the way that you're talking about it, it, it implies... A, a developed 
understanding of the scriptural argument. Because if your bhakti is to be very um, steady, then the more informed it is as to what you're doing, what bhakti constitutes, and so forth, the, the, the better of your are your chances to apply yourself consciously and and be steady in your practice. And the scriptural arguments kind of corner you like, oh, oh, I can't do that or I'll be a hypocrite. And that's, that's good. It helps you. So, so your question is then that it's that some people teach, but they teach something unorthodox. And so what stage have they attained? Well, my answer to that is that in one sense, it depends what they teach in terms of it being unorthodox. Um, for example, there, there are a lot of details. Hmm. And not every teacher is going to know every detail. Some may be more experts in some areas of the, of the tradition, and some may be more experts in other areas of the, of the tradition. Hmm. And so um, um, you might find a teacher that teaches something that, uh, that, that, is, that maybe he learned or she learned or heard and so forth, and they're representing it, and, and it's, it's not exactly correct. But it may be a small thing, hmm? and they didn't learn that area very well, and so... It's not their their main focus, and that may not hurt you. It may not be a problem. It may not. It may not. Um, it, 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 it may not uh, bear on what stage they're in. Hmm? Um, you know, it depends. Like Prabhupada, for example, my guru. Sometimes he would quote verses quite a bit, but sometimes he would quote the first half of one verse and the second half of another verse. From the Bhagavad Gita, and I thought, oh, he's quoting. He made a mistake. He's quoting two different verses. So, I wouldn't think, oh, he's supposed to be beyond the stage of nishta, so he must know every verse properly. And, you know, so that, there, that would be an over, you know, kind of reaction, mm-hmm. right? Um, slip of the mind, whatever, you know, um, or tongue, I should say, and so forth. So there's, these are small things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are, there are principles. Hmm. There are also details and principles, and details are different, maybe different. Te- different teachers may teach different details in order to activate the principle. Hmm. So what we're concerned about is principle teachings. Now, that said, with the principle teachings, there may also sometimes be instances in which principle teachings are taught in a particular way at a particular time. Let's take the word siddhanta again, the orthodox conclusion. You can have an orthodox conclusion for neophytes, for intermediates, and for superlative devotees. Hmm. Ways of talking about their tradition. Where you can't, you know, I can't tell her everything. It's like you take a child. Let's take a child. You bring her in, and you say, Dasi, I want you to understand that 
we're sitting on earth, we're standing on the earth right now, but the earth is actually moving, orbiting like this, around the sun. Is that right? That's how it works? I don't even know. It's going around the sun like this. So she goes, okay, I'm standing still. looks like we're standing still, but I have faith in you, so I believe it. It's going around like this. You got that? She got it. Okay, and they say, now I want to tell you another thing. Hmm? The earth is moving around the sun like this, and the earth is moving around like this. As it moves around, and she says, ah, <laughs> my head is spinning around. Hmm? So she just short circuits on you, right? So maybe you can't tell everything at once, and you, you tell part of it. Hmm? The whole thing's not told. Later on, someone comes to say, oh, your guru didn't tell you, this is actually this over here. And, uh, you think, my guru didn't know. I guess he wasn't well informed. Maybe you weren't well enough situated that he thought, or she thought, that she could impart it to you in such a way that it would be motivating for you to practice whereby you'd actually get realization and insight. Hmm? So there's an art in explaining and in teaching, right? Hmm? And the art is to keep the train moving somehow, keep the practice going. Hmm? And sometimes details and even some principal ideas will be better filled in in time as you progress and you may be more suited to learn and so forth. So it may appear um, that some teachers are teaching something that's upasadanta. Hmm? Just like you take, for example, you know, like another example. Of, of the child. The child says, Mom, where did I come from? Okay. And she looks at Dad and goes, and they both kind of chuckle. Okay, well, how are we going to answer this one now? So, so they say, well, Dad says, well, one day we opened the chimney and, there, and a big bird had dropped you off in there. Okay. Hmm. So Dad has taught something that's untrue, but... He thought, she can't digest the whole thing. He can't digest the whole thing. So I'm going to say it like this. And later on, uh, when, she, when he grows up, you know, figure it out a little bit better. And we'll be able to, so something like that. So um, sometimes my guru, for example, was asked, how do we get here? He, he said, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. You chose to come. So there you go. Just leave it at that. Okay. Huh. The actual teaching is, of course, nobody falls here. It's not like you enter perfection and then you fall down. Something like that. That's a Christian kind of way of thinking about it. He fell from perfection, from Adam and Eve, I guess it was. They fell, so everybody fell with them. Everybody thereafter has fallen or something like that. So he reasoned, here I am, this Christian country, you know, trying this out here. This is in the, in the 60s and early 70s and so forth. So sometimes he said, don't, don't think about it, you're here. That's for sure. Find your way out. And this was you, you made a choice. Hmm? You made a choice today not to chant, right? So there you go. Hmm? You have the opportunity for perfection and you're choosing not to. So there you go. So you, it's not God's fault. You know, this is a th- question of theodicy. You know, if God is good, why is there suffering and problems in the world? How did I get into this world of suffering if God is good? You just want to say, it's not God's fault, it's your fault. That is the teaching. Hmm? But... But as you go on and so forth, you see other parts of his books he teaches. In the books he teaches, actually it's like this. 
nobody falls from perfection. Karma has no beginning, and so on. He gives the whole, whole teaching there. Hmm? So sometimes it may appear like someone is teaching, a teacher is teaching up a Siddhanta, but that may just be a time and circumstance call that they have come up with that they think will help the students in that situation continue to go forward and progress, and later on they'll be more amenable or their, their minds will be more congenial to a metaphysical answer. They don't want a metaphysical answer at a certain point. They're not well enough situated to to digest it and so forth. So there may be instances like that. Hmm? Now, um, that said, there may be instances where persons take on the role of teaching and they actually do what you're saying. They actually have a wrong idea and it's a principal idea and then they they propagate it. Hmm? Um, then, why do they have that wrong idea? Hmm? Well, they must have learned it a particular way, hmm? thought it was taught like that, hmm? and so forth. Generally what will happen is this, is that that um, misunderstanding will be given, and the person who carries it, who is teaching, a chance hmm, to understand that it's errant. Hmm? And thus the, achan- the chance to, oh, correct. The person may be a good teacher in other respects, but at this point he or she didn't understand and is teaching like that. And so in the course of their progress, they will, will come to hmm, the understanding, oh, this needs to be corrected. or, or And how they respond to that now depends. If they're a humble teacher, they go, oh, yeah, well, okay, got it. From another teacher. Hmm? Learn from another contemporary, hmm? for example. Um, everybody's not expert in, in everything. I was writing to this one fellow today, and um, he had this confidence in this other godbrother of mine hmm? um, who passed away. And he, he had written a book. And there were some ideas in there that were heterodox. Hmm? I hadn't seen the book before he passed away, and it really wasn't circulated until afterwards. And but um, and so I told the fellow, well, these are, these are unorthodox ideas, actually. And uh, so he became very, you know, kind of upset because he liked that guy. Hmm? And I said, well, you may like him and you may know him, but I know him better than you. I've known him for 40 years. Hmm? And he used to serve under me, and I was one of his teachers. <laughs> and that's a fact. And I used to readily correct him on points, and he would appreciate it and go forward and so forth. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to review his book, but I would have told him. And given his track record in the past, he probably would have responded. And I'm pretty well known throughout the whole bhakti community of Gaudias for being well, very well um, um, learned in the conclusions with the ability to explain them and, and bring them to life. I'm known for that. He was not known for that. He was known for something else. He was known for his expertise in kirtan. So I said, he's a person that's inspired you. Take the things that he's inspired you by that he's good at. He was better at kirtan than me, so <laughs> make him your kirtan teacher, but don't make him your teacher of Gaudiya Siddhanta. Hmm? 
that was never his forte. So learn to appreciate the people who help you, the teacher figures in, in your life. And I don't know if this fellow ever met him personally, but he was inspired by his example. It learned to from the teachers, hmm? and if there's something about the teachers that you find out is 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 not correct, then you, you dismiss that part. Hmm? Something like that. In the context of it all, you obviously need at least at least one comprehensive teacher on the teachings, but. Others may inspire you or in other ways. I mean, that guy was very expert at Kirtan. He could come here and get the whole place lit up with Kirtan and people be excited and, and they don't need to donate a class. Hmm? I just bore you with some class and philosophy and so forth. <laughs> and so, so I think like that. But of course, the philosophy underlies the teaching. And my relationship with that person was always, this is the teaching, this is the Siddhanta. And he would, okay. Hmm? I've known him for many years. He served under me in a couple of places and for years at a time. So they don't. That's my relationship with him. You may like him, but he doesn't even know your name. And I know him as personally for for a long time. So you might want to consider my input. And what he's written here, this is unorthodox. That doesn't mean throw him out. Throw him in the Ganges immediately. He's terrible. He hasn't even reached the stage of Nishta. We should drown the man. You know, tar and feather him. No, it doesn't mean that hmm? necessarily. No. Hmm? Now, now, if a person in a position like that has the opportunity to learn and be corrected on something, hmm? I've seen many teachers. There are teachers um, like. Um, Let's say I pass from the world today and I make Haridas my successor. Hmm? So he's now the you know, the, the teacher. And he's how old are you? He's twenty five. Okay. And so now there are other people in this tradition who are much older than you and much more learned. Hmm? They're in a slightly different they have a different guru. Then hmm? it's possible that you might be teaching something and that guru might say, actually, Haridas, what you're saying there is, is not entirely correct. Then you think, oh, I'll, thank you. I'm a teacher, but still, every teacher is not the same. So how you respond to that is what's important. They will say something about your standing. If you say, am I, you know, no, who cares for you? I'm the guru now, you know, and you may be older or whatever, but, but, um, my guru said it like this, and, I, and the guy says, I don't think he said it quite like that. If he did, that's not what he meant. And this is why, and this is, I show you care, and you just don't care for that, and you become ballistic and emotional and so forth, then you haven't reached the stage of Nishta. <laughs> you're, you're having a, you know, you shouldn't be in the position of a teacher, and I'll go to hell for recommending you as my successor. <laughs> so I won't do that. Not right now, and I'm not leaving yet, so at this moment. So, so you know, I want to give you a more broader way of thinking about it. So it's not just a black and white kind of a situation. But there may be instances where that's really a problem, and as I've explained, and there may be instances where it's, it's not such of a problem. So there's no one-size-fits-all kind of answer um, to your question. Does that help? Okay. What else? Any follow-up on that or anything else? Yeah. Uh, along those same lines... 
somebody who has faith in a certain um, I guess modified principle, as you mentioned, or unorthodox idea. And that is providing them their faith. What is the reason to say, for example, to follow the jiva? That they believe strictly on what Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada, Isi Bhaktivedanta Swami, has preached. And for them, that's feeding them. And so what are the main reasons for you to expound the, the philosophy now as... And disturb their faith. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Okay, so what you're saying is Prabhupada, as I mentioned, my guru sometimes said, you know, but you know, you, 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 you with Krishna, you, 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 you have free will, you rejected, you fell here, so let's just get on with it. And so, but, but that's but in other places. But my point was also in other places, he writes the actual fact. Hmm? There's no fall from there. You can't fall from perfection, and so and he explains the nature of conditioning to be anadi without beginning and so forth. Hmm? So. You have it in both places. Now, a person has faith on the one side; they haven't heard the other side, or they heard it and they don't—they like the other, the, the simple answer, and so forth. And so they're going forward with it. That's okay. That's okay. But um, if the particular point, issue, or topic hmm, um, in the community at large becomes an issue that seeks a definitive answer. Hmm? Here, Prabhupada said it in both ways. So some people go, wait, well, there's a problem. He said it both ways. Which one is right? One person says, well, I just like this. I don't care. Okay, but other people are thinking, which one of these is right? They've come to that point. Of thinking, hmm, they've said there's a contradiction here, they, and they want to know. So what about them? I can't ignore them. Hmm? They want to know. And this happened. Hmm? They wanted to know. And so then you have to point out, he said like this for these reasons, he said like this over here. What he says here conforms with the, with the tradition for hundreds of years. Hmm? So this is the conclusion. This is some provisional teaching that he put out there. So if I don't say that, then who will feed the people who are going forward and realizing there's a contradiction here? Hmm? And they seek resolution. If I don't make it a point to to um, answer to them in the name of not disturbing the minds of those who want to think of it in in one way, then uh, then the lesser advanced persons, so to speak, who can't deal with the, the contradictions, are are nourished in some way at the cost of nourishing others. Hmm? And it's then it just becomes a consequence of educating, answering those who need a more definitive answer that you know that there's two sides. There's, there is a contradiction. Hmm? So then you try to help those people come up. Hmm? And if they argue, they fight with you and, and so on and so forth. And what can you do? Uh, now the teaching is coming to them in a particular way hmm, by Krishna's arrangement and they have to they're supposed to deal with it if they fight against it that becomes a problem it's not a problem until they start to fight against it then they start making offenses and so forth and we're not out to just disturb their minds we didn't, we didn't create the issue 
we didn't just go, well, here's the answer, let's go tell everybody, you know. But but it becomes it's become a point where what happened is that other teachers came along. For example, after the passing of Prabhupada, this is just like the example I gave earlier, hmm? and someone of Prabhupada's students said something like, well, the jiva, the, the atma falls from, you know, the perfection to here. And he said, what are you talking about? That's not the teaching. What you, well, Prabhupada, my guru said like this, oh, okay, hmm, oh, why I know him, why did he say like that? Hmm. Okay, it must have been like this and like that. Okay, so then he tries to navigate the course and help the student understand. Hmm. What can you do? Then you have to, then you have to make the case. So then you make the case, and you say, your guru was teaching in a provisional way there. That was required. This is the actual teaching. Now you're asking. This is how, or now it's coming up, and I happen to know this, and uh, it's, so it's come to the fore. So I'm I'm dealing with it. And then you say, my guru never taught in a provisional way. You know, hmm? he would have told me everything because I'm a, such a great student. <laughs> you know, is what they're really saying. You know. We can show you many other instances in which he taught in a provisional way, and you will accept it, because hmm? you witnessed it. Hmm? He talked to some Christians. He said, it doesn't matter. Chant Krishna, Krishna, Christ, it doesn't matter. Just anything. You know? Okay. That's a broad way of looking at it, and then there's a more refined way of looking at it, too. So that's the provisional type of teaching. So it just so happens that it's, now this is an instance, but other teachings, other aspects of the teaching come to the fore, and and then you see people are harboring an idea. They fastened on. Not only, did, not only did they have a simple belief like that, they just kept them going. Now it's becoming an, 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 an ingrained conviction in a wrong idea. People said they didn't even think about it that much. When they did think about it, they said, oh, well, I must have made some mistake. And they were here, so not, not God's fault. Hare Krishna. You know. Now what they do is they fight against it, unfortunately, and then they try to... Then they, Try to reason about it, why it must be so, and so forth. So it gets ingrained, and it get develop some scar for it, and it just becomes more problematic. And try to avoid it as much as possible, but um, to help, yeah, yeah. At some point, some some of these ideas, provisional ideas. Um, preaching strategies for time and place have their time and their place and it's run out. It's a new time and a new place. They don't have currency anymore. And so the successor is dealing with that situation. Hmm. And he wants to bring, for example, in this instance, Prabhupada in line with every other Gaudiya, Acharya, and every other Sampradaya. That's how wrong, how different it is. (laughs) Every other Sampradaya, including the Shankar Sampradaya, <laughs> and to speak of all the Vaishnav Sampradayas, don't don't teach that. So you want to bring Prabhupada in line with that. Somebody wants to hang on to this and take him separate from all of that. So that's the problem. What else? Yes. Um, First learned through scripture, through a teacher. Um, I guess 
we'll stick to scripture. Some things are learned first through scripture. As you said, you learn the rules first, and then the realization comes. Um, are there instances where one may have realization, and then the rules come after? Yeah, it's possible, sure. Sure. You may have deep experience, and then, then later you, you read, oh, it's, this is what was happening. It's possible. Hmm. In that sense, can there be a, a teacher who may be very advanced but may not know how to like, explain it? There are teachers that are not good at explaining. <laughs> they're not teachers in a teaching sense, but they're great realized people that don't have the art maybe of explaining. It's good to be in their company. They generally won't say too much. And it's, it's possible. There are examples like that in our tradition. But um, generally they don't also, also don't put themselves out there as teachers, but they become teachers because people can recognize these people. This, this person is otherworldly, and so they want their association and so forth. And they don't say too, too much. They say, just get out here, leave me alone. I'm nobody. Hmm. And so then people come that much more, you know. And it's, a, it's a problem. And, you know, he doesn't say enough to fill, you know, a notebook of stuff, but he's a siddha, and so there, there are people like that. And you want to be associated with a siddha, but then there are disadvantages. that You cannot be necessarily systematically trained and taught, which for most people is required. Because you can be inspired by a siddha in their company and get a good sanskar from them and so forth, and that's very helpful in their blessing, their affection, their recognition of you as an aspirant, and that goes a long way, but still, you're probably going to need to be taught, you know, the, the, the teachings in order to proceed in a systematic way, in due course, and so. Sridhar Marsh was very articulate, as you know, but he was quite old, and um, and um, and I had the experience of, of, a, of a devotee hearing from him and from um, one of his students, who was a renunciate like me, sannyasin, and then and he wanted to be initiated by the sannyasin, and the sannyasin said, "Well, don't you want to be initiated by Shridharmarsh?" He said, "No, I mean, he said, you know, he likes you, and you teach me everything. I get more time. You give me all the teachings and everything, very and so forth, very personally, and so." He was kind of surprised. Shida Marsh was chuckling. He said, very nice. Uh, so it's kind of an example of something like that. What else? You follow a little more. I try to make it understandable. <laughs> Bring you into the picture a little bit here. What's the time? Okay. It's time to, time to stop. Shri Gornatananda ki jai, Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrindati ki jai, Gaur Premanand.